All right, please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the epistle of 1 John, chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2. Now, if, if 1 John is like Mount Everest, the section we are about to read, I think, is the summit. It's the peak of the mountain. What we've read before leads up uh, to that peak, and everything we're going to read in the weeks ahead flows from this peak, and, and like the top of a mountain, when we get to the peak, it is absolutely stunning and breathtaking and glorious. At the peak of a mountain, you get a totally different perspective as you stand there, even above the clouds, looking down on the world. As we approach the summit of First John in the next few verses... We are meant to experience something that changes our perspective, to encounter truths and realities that will give us peace, give us confidence, give us assurance, and give us overflowing joy and wonder. And so as we approach the summit of the mountain together and climb to the top and behold what is waiting for us, please stand with me now in honor of the reading of the words of our great and glorious God. This is First John Chapter 2, starting at verse 28. And we'll read on down through chapter 3, verse 3. God's Word says, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is Your holy and inspired Word. Grass withers, the flower fades, the Word of the Lord endures forever. Father, I pray that this Word would penetrate our hearts. And Father, help us to receive what You say here. Help us to believe it. Help us to be encouraged by it. Help our lives to be changed by these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the, uh, in the movie uh, Born Identity, you have a, a man who wakes up out of unconsciousness to discover that he has no idea who he is. He doesn't remember anything about his life, his past, his friends, his enemies, everything. Even his identity is forgotten. And as the story progresses, this man is discovering that he has certain skills, certain abilities, uh, certain resources that he totally forgot. And it turns out this man was a, a black ops secret agent working for the government, and he spends the rest of the story trying to, to piece together, trying to reconstruct his forgotten identity. Now, the movie is not believable in a lot of ways. But uh, there is one thing about the movie that's true. Your identity matters. Who you really are or who you think you are is of the utmost importance and will even affect how you live your life. Paul Tripp says that Christians often suffer from 
identity amnesia. We're like spiritual Jason Bournes. We've forgotten who we really are. Tripp goes on to say that as a, as a believer, when you have confusion of identity, you are a sitting duck for sin's insanity. Identity matters. Who you think you are matters. It'll affect your life, your marriage, uh, how you handle temptation, disappointments, challenges, and it'll affect your sense of peace and confidence and security in God. Now, as we continue through the book of 1 John, the apostle is writing to believers who are suffering from spiritual am- uh, identity amnesia. Uh, the believers of the churches of first century Asia Minor are really struggling with their sense of peace. They're struggling with knowing for sure where they stand with God. They've been rattled by false teachers who have infiltrated these churches and has, have sown confusion in them. <clears throat> and, and though these false teachers have abandoned the churches, the believers who remained in them have been left shaken and confused by these antichrists. That's what John calls them, antichrists, these false teachers. And John wants to help them regain their confidence, their spiritual equilibrium. And he says in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John's goal is to give these Christians rock-solid confidence and assurance of their salvation. And God has preserved this ancient letter to give Christians today rock-solid confidence and assurance of their salvation from the first century to the 21st century. It's always been a, a chief strategy of Satan to stir up doubt and anxiety in believers about their relationship to God. The devil wants you paralyzed with fear. And my prayer is that this scripture today will radically change your perspective and give you a peace and a confidence that you've never known. And the centerpiece, the climax of this section is chapter 3, verse 1, where John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is the incredible truth that's meant to clear away the cobwebs of the believer's identity amnesia and set his feet on solid ground because there is no more powerful and wonderful and beautiful assurance that John can give than reminding you that you're a child of God and that you have eternal life. And from that truth flow three things that are true of you if you are a child of God. The first thing we see is the confidence of God's child, the confidence of God's child. Look with me at verse 28. John says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. At the coming of Christ, at the day of judgment, there will be two reactions that people will have. Confidence or cowardice. And that's particularly why these struggling Christians need assurance. You see, they recognize something that many people today don't recognize. That when Jesus Christ returns, it will be a a day of shrinking back in shame for many people. It'll be a day of fear and trembling. 
We're about to enter Christmas time, where the focus is on the first coming of Jesus. And we think about the babe in the manger, and we set up our cute nativity sets, and we pass around Hallmark cards, and we sing peace on earth, goodwill to men, and it's a very warm and sentimental kind of time. For most people, the second coming of Jesus will be a horrifying day. Jesus came the first time to save the world, but Jesus will come next time to judge the world. The book of Revelation describes Jesus with a sword with which to strike down the nations. The Bible says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. You don't see Hallmark cards talking about that. You're not going to see any holiday TV specials about that. Jesus Christ is the Savior, but He's also the righteous one who's returning to judge everyone who's rebelled against Him, against everyone who has sinned. I think of Revelation chapter 6 where you have kings and generals and great and mighty men cowering, shrinking back in fear, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, saying, Fall on us and hide from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? That's the question. That's the question of these first century Christians in Asia Minor. And it's a question that sinners have been asking for thousands of years. Long before the Apostle John wrote this letter, uh, the psalmist considered this crucial question in Psalm 130, verse 3, where he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? If God is a perfect God, which He is, and if God's standards for us is perfection, which it is, if we aren't perfect, which we aren't, If we are wretches, heinous, sinful rebels, which we are, how can any of us stand in the presence of a holy God? How can any of us have confidence at His coming? John says that the child of God can have confidence by abiding in God. Look again at verse 28. Abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Abiding produces confidence. Well, that's great. What does that mean? How do you abide in Him so that you can have that confidence? What does that ultimately look like? Well, if you look back up a few verses earlier, John's already told you. Uh, Look at verse 24. John says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And and, and what have they heard from the beginning? What is that? It's the apostolic message. God's truth handed down from God to the disciples, now now codified in the Bible. And the message of the apostles is the foundation of the church. And at the center of the apostolic message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. John's saying, little children, let the gospel abide in you. Don't reject the truth like the false teachers, like the Antichrist did. Stick with the message. Abide in what you have heard. Live, eat, drink, breathe the gospel. This is your life. The gospel, which is the announcement that the Father was pleased to save rebellious sinners from His holy wrath, 
by sending his son Jesus Christ into the world, who's 100% God and 100% man. Christ came to bear our sins on the cross, and on the cross, God the Father poured out his wrath on sin in Jesus. And if that's true, then all who receive Jesus and trust in him will find that their sins are already paid for. They're already dealt with. And therefore, God's wrath, uh, that wrath that those kings and generals in Revelation chapter 6 are so fearful of, that wrath that you see in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back with a sword, that wrath in Revelation 20 where all whose names are not written in the book of life are cast into hell, that wrath that these first century believers in Asia Minor are so scared of, that wrath has already been satisfied on behalf of believers on the cross. That's the essence of the gospel message. John says in verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And look at what John says next. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Look at that carefully. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. That's the only way to abide in God. You reject the apostolic message, you cannot abide in God. Instead, you must hold fast to the truth of the gospel, which means banking all of your hopes on that message you heard from the beginning. You see, if the foundation of your hope is on your personal performance, on how often you do things right, on how religious you are, on how many times you did your devos this week, or on anything else, if, if your confidence is based on anything else outside of the gospel, then you will not stand in confidence on that last day. You will shrink back in shame. Psalmist says in Psalm 103, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And in the very next verse, he says, But with you there is forgiveness. The same God in whose presence the sinner cannot stand is the same God who forgives the sinner. If you're here this morning as a child of God, you will be able to stand before God on the day of judgment, not because you are standing on the shaky ground of what you've done for God, Instead, you will stand in confidence because you're on the firm ground of what Jesus has done for you through his life, his death, and his resurrection. You will not shrink back from the Father. Instead, as you abide in him, you will have confidence. That Greek word translated confidence means so much more than the English can explain. It includes the notion of boldness, openness, freedom, Think about the kind of confident freedom a child has towards a father he loves and who loves him. You know, Steve read that scripture earlier, that wonderful scripture in Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I remember a long time ago, my, uh, my son, Ethan, was a toddler. It seems ages ago because he's so massive now. Just look at him. He's huge. But I remember we lived in an apartment in South Portland, Maine. And I work all day, and I come home after a long day of work. 
and, and there was a, a long corridor I'd have to walk down to get to the apartment. And, and I remember coming up the stairs and rounding the corner as I began my, my walk down that hallway. And Dana knew I was there because I'd buzzed the buzzer to get into the building. And so she'd open the door to the apartment, and I'm rounding the corner, and I can see this little tiny boy on the other end of the hallway. And he, and he looks, and he sees me. And, and, and he just beams with such delight and starts running. And you know how toddlers run. You know, he, he's running the little toddler run down the hall as fast as his little legs can, can carry him, sometimes tripping over himself to get to me. And, and he didn't care how funny he looked. There was this joyful confidence. There, there was this bold abandon. He's not shrinking back in fear. Oh, I wonder if Dad loves me today. No, no, no. He's gone for broke because the one he's been waiting for, the one he loves, and the one who loves him has finally returned. He, he's my child and I'm his father. And he knows it. I think that speaks of, of something of that, that confident uh, joyful assurance God's child should have with the thought of seeing his father one day. And that confident assurance is available to all who abide in God. So there's the confidence of God's child. Then there's also the secure status of God's child. If, if John chapter 2 verse 28 through chapter 3 verse 3 is the summit of this book, I would suggest to you that the peak of the peak is chapter 3 verse 1. Uh, Look at it with me. Verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's the peak of the peak. That's the glorious climax. There is no more powerful and wonderful and beautiful assurance that John can give you than reminding you that you are a child of God loved by the Father. And isn't it amazing that John, now an elderly man, now a mature Christian who's been abiding in Jesus for many, many years, isn't it amazing that he's amazed, that he's still amazed after all this time, amazed about the love that the Father has shown believers. He is blown away by God's love. And I know that he's blown away because John actually interrupts his train of thought in chapter 2, verse 29, to to praise God for his love. In chapter 2, verse 29, John's about to begin a discourse about the characteristics of a true believer compared to an unbeliever. The believer practices righteousness. The unbeliever practices lawlessness. Look at verse 29. He says, if you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And I know John interrupts himself because he actually doesn't follow up on this train of thought specifically until chapter 3, verse 4. And the, and the reason being is because he gets distracted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. He gets distracted by his own comment in verse 29 about the believer being born of God. And, and this notion of being born of God sets his mind off in a new direction, a new tangent. I mean, it's a related tangent. But there's a little parenthetical statement here these next couple of verses. It's almost like when he considers that the believer has been born of God, he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, i got to stop here. i got to stop here and just praise God for something. This is amazing. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Now, 
this began to set off in my mind the question of why is John so blown away by this? And why aren't we as blown away by this as he is? He's way more mature in the faith than we are, and he can't get over this. And I wonder if it is because we have trivialized the love of God. I mean, we've trivialized love, period, but in in particular, the love of God. We just, we talk very glibly about the love of God, and we, we take it for granted. And I wonder if the church has been influenced by the world in regards to this topic of God's love. It's very common in the world for people to say that we are, we're all children of God. And God loves everyone in exactly the same way. But, if we're all God's children, and if God loved everyone in exactly the same way, why would John marvel over this with such amazement? What's the big deal? It's like a, like a t-shirt I, recently, I saw recently that says, Jesus loves you. But then again, he loves everyone. No big deal. Or, or it's like that, that line from the movie The Incredibles. Oh, the sage wisdom that is buried in Pixar films. In, in the movie, you've got this, uh, this family with superpowers. And the boy in the movie, Dash, he can run really fast. And the parents don't really want him to use his full powers on the track. And, and there's this little struggle about why, why can't he be fast? And why are they giving out these little ribbons to everyone for mediocrity? And, and his mother tells him that everyone is special, Dash. And the boy Dash comes back with an incredible, pun intended, an incredible line. You remember what it is? He says... If everyone's special, no one is. I'm like, wow, that's, that was good. Listen, there, there's a lot of parents in this room. And so you should get this. You love other kids that aren't your own, don't you? Of course you do. But, but if you loved other kids in the exact same way as you love your own, what would that say about what you thought of your own kids? You get this, mom. You get this, dad. You understand this. Yes, you love all kids, but there is something special between you and your own kids. Those other kids aren't your kids. There is a type of love relationship that you have with them that you have with no other children, and that's good. You shouldn't feel guilty about that. So it is with God and with being His child. There is a sense that God loves everyone. I'm not here to dispute that. But it is not the same kind of special love he has for his children. He does not have the same kind of relationship with everyone. And not everyone is a child of God. We'll talk more about this next week. There are only two families in the world. There are the children of God and the children of the devil. Scripture's plain about this in many places. And the Apostle John knows this. The Apostle John heard with his own ears Jesus call certain people children of the devil. The Apostle John heard Jesus tell a bunch of self-righteous people that God is not their father. And so with that knowledge, John is blown away that he should be called A child of God. Here's another reason I think John is blown away. I think John is blown away because he is fully aware that he was not always a child of God. 
but that before Jesus saved him, he was a child of wrath. No one is naturally a child of God. This is, this is why the only way we can become children of God is if God adopts us. The truth is implicit in what John says, that we should be called children of God. Suggests that our sonship or daughtership to God is something that God chooses to bestow, to confer upon certain people. It's implicit in 1 John. It's explicit in Ephesians. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. We were there earlier this morning. Let's turn there again. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, Steve read a, a one scripture this morning that celebrates the fact that, that God has adopted us in, in Christ. And actually, I read it too, Ab, the Abba Father passage in Romans. But let's look at this one here in Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. And Paul, like John, by the way, is just exuberant with joy over these truths. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, there's that special kind of love here. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Now, I want the weight of that to overwhelm you. Some of you Calvinists are so familiar with this passage, it's just kind of ho-hum to you. Let it, let it hit you between the eyes like it should. God chose you to be His son, to be His daughter. Why would He do that? Because you're awesome? Because you're so irresistible and lovable that God had to have you? Because you did something for God, to earn His favor? The Apostle John's readers and the Apostle Paul's readers knew about adoption. In the first century Roman world, adoption was a familiar concept. But adoption was typically done in that time in such a way where a young man who had proven his worth and valor as a successor was chosen as the adoptee. I'm reminded of that great movie, Ben-Hur. Charlton Heston. You know, they're going to make, make a remake. You know it's not going to be as good. And in that movie, Judah saves the life of a Roman warship captain. And in return, the captain adopts Judah into his family as a son and becomes his heir. Roman adoption was more about what have you done or what can you do for me, the father, as, as opposed to solely benefiting the adoptee. There wasn't really a lot of charity going on. Back then. This is why infants weren't usually adopted. They hadn't proven themselves. They were seen as a risk and were often simply just abandoned to die. They were unwanted. That's how it worked in first century Rome. That's not how it works with God. And aren't you thankful for that? That doesn't work that way. God doesn't adopt anyone who is worthy, there is no one who is worthy. Uh, there is no one who can benefit God, make the family name look better, take care of him in his old age. If you're here this morning as a Christian, it's not like you were in the spiritual orphanage as some cute and cuddly and innocent baby that captured the heart of the Father. It wasn't that you were awesome. 
God doesn't adopt awesome people. He adopts His enemies. Turn over to Ephesians 2. The adoption Paul describes in Ephesians 1 won't fully blow you away unless you understand what we were when God chose us. Paul here is writing to ex-spiritual orphans, reminding them of the spiritual poverty and squalor that God brought them out of. Look at the first verse there. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, you're fo- you were following the devil. You're part of his family. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and, and, and the mind. In other words, you hated God in his ways. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There's nothing you, in and of yourself, had to bring to the table to make the the family of God look better. To benefit the family of God and the family name. If God were a first century Roman noble, he would have recoiled from you in horror and abandoned you to die. However, look at verse 4. But God. One of the most beautiful transitions in the whole Bible, those two words. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Your salvation was completely and totally an act of God's great love, mercy, and power. And that's why John interrupts his own train of thought and bursts forth with praise. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father's given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so we are now. Not sometime in the future. Not Maybe sometime down the road you'll be a child of God if if we're good enough, if we're lucky enough. No, no, no. John says, and so we are. The previous verse, chapter 2, verse 29, says, You have already been born of God. This is your born identity, so to speak. God has spiritually birthed you and given you life. You're God's child. He's chosen you. And He has chosen you not for destruction, but for the exact opposite. For salvation. If God has showered such marvelous love upon you, can you have a greater assurance and confidence than that? God doesn't unadopt his children. Parents, you love your children, even when they fail, even when they don't always live up to what you think they can be. You just don't throw them out of the family, you continue to love them. They are still your child. Do you think your standards are superior to God's? God never ejects his children from the family. They always have a seat at the table. If you are his child this morning, you should have confident assurance in this because it's not just that God has chosen you, it's that he has chosen you for something very specific, which leads to my final observation, the glorious future... Of God's child. Look at verse 2 with me. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, 
we shall be like him. God loved you so much, he saved you where you were. But he also loves you so much not to leave you where you were. If, if a parent adopts a child from a situation where there is poverty and abuse and neglect, that parent isn't going to leave that child in that situation. The whole purpose of adoption is to bring them into a situation that is better. God adopted you from spiritual poverty, from spiritual squalor, Uh, Not simply to leave you there. Instead, God's grand and glorious purpose is for you to become just like your father. As, As a child begins over time to take on the appearance and characteristics of their earthly parents, so it is with the children of God. Notice again what John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. And John's saying two things here both of which should give believers assurance. First, John is saying that the genuine believer is not yet perfect. The believer has not yet become all he should be. And that would have been very encouraging to John's audience, who is struggling with assurance. As they examine their lives, they they see that they aren't all they should be. They still struggle and fail and battle against sinful desires. And John is not shocked by that. He doesn't expect that any of these people should have arrived yet. But John's also hinting at something else. What we will be has not yet appeared. You haven't arrived yet, true, but you are going somewhere. There is a plan that your Father has for you. There is something more to look forward to, so don't lose heart. Something even better is coming for you. And what is coming? Look at the end of verse 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Isn't that wonderful? You're going to be like Jesus. Who's Jesus? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And you're going to be like him. You're going to look exactly like your father, your heavenly father. That's your destiny. That's the end of the road for you. That's why God adopted you in the first place, to reflect His beauty and His glory and His goodness. I know as you sit there and you consider your sins and your imperfections and how many times you mess up, it's hard for you to fathom this truth. It's hard for us as a church to fathom this when, when you've got imperfect pastors and imperfect members, and we rub one another the wrong way, and sometimes we struggle to get along, and we sin against one another. John Calvin said it well when he said, our present condition is very short of the glory of God's children. We struggle now, but something so much better is coming. This is God's word of assurance to you, my friends. We will be like him. You will be like him. You'll look just like your father, because you'll look just like Jesus. Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, died a few years ago, and on her tombstone is written the words, end of construction, thank you for your patience. It's pretty good. I like that. By God's grace, you are not what you once were, but by God's grace you will be far more than you are now because you'll be like Him. 
I hope that climbing to the summit of 1 John has given you some hope and some assurance this morning. Breathe in that cool, crisp, refreshing air standing on the mountain peak as you remember who you are. Abide in the hope of the gospel. Revel in God's glorious adopting love for you. Root yourself in the hope of future glory. And if you do this, look what will happen, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's God's plan for you. I'll end with this. Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, that's you, if you're a believer, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's you if you're a believer. It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Be blown away by that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Some of us have good earthly dads. Some of us not so much. All of our earthly dads are sinners and imperfect. And you have become father to us. You are the perfect father, the perfect God, who always does right by his children, who always gives good things to his children. And one of the good things you offer through these scriptures this morning is assurance. And Father, I pray for any believer in this room this morning, any child of God who is wavering, who is struggling, who is uneasy about where they stand with God because they look and they see so many flaws and so much sin and so much imperfection. God, would you help them to abide in the gospel and what they have heard from the beginning? Will you give them assurance by the power of the Holy Spirit that they can cry out to you, Abba, Father, and that you hear their cries and that you will never leave or forsake your children? Father, I wonder if there is any here who are outside of the family. What a wonderful day this would be to talk about these wonderful things and to look at this incredible Scripture. What a day it would be for 
those outside the family to now be brought in by you. So, Father, I pray for unbelieving hearts this morning, that you would awaken faith, that you would open eyes, and that those who were once children of wrath even now are calling out to you and believing in you and trusting in you. And the Scripture says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you for your love and kindness and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.